0: You start to think about what could this sector look like, and again, it's not philanthropic; it's it's building a thriving world. I mean, how else are we going to thrive as business if we keep drawing down on our natural and human capital? How good is that going to be for business in the long run?
1: Welcome to Climate Positive, a podcast produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions. I'm Chad Reed.
0: I'm Hillary Langer.
1: I'm Gil Jenkins. In this series, we host candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate-positive future. Profits should come not from creating the world's problems, but from solving them. Companies must ask themselves, is the world better off because your business is in it? This is the urgent and clear frame offered by globally renowned sustainable business author and advisor Andrew Winston in his recent book, Net Positive, which he co-authored with Paul Pullman, the visionary former CEO of Unilever. In this episode, I speak with Andrew about the principles and practices of net positive leaders. We also talked at length about the growth of clean energy and sustainable businesses, what ultimately convinced him to write what is now his fourth book on this subject, and what makes his co-author's journey so compelling and instructive for others. We also found time to talk about the golden rule, why corporate climate advocacy is so important, the failure of shareholder primacy and much, much more. I have been a huge fan of Andrew's writing for some time, having first met him at a book signing at a series conference in Boston about a decade ago. The last time we chatted was during the very early days of the pandemic. Andrew had just started writing net positive and we hadn't yet started this show. So it feels like some measure of providence to have him on our podcast as we kick off the new year to talk about the ways businesses can step up their game to confront the massive challenges our world faces and help lead us to a better future. So with that, here's my conversation with Andrew. I hope you enjoy it. Andrew, welcome to Climate Positive. Thanks, thanks for having me. Let's begin with a sort of level setting for our audience. In reading Net positive, I was really struck by... The elegance of the question that you and Paul raised, which I think really captures the concept and this notion very simply that all businesses should ask is the world better off because your company is in it? Can you kind of expand on that for our listeners and give us a sense of how you arrived at what's a simple but really arresting prompt? I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, it's it's funny i don't think we started with that question exactly we kind of ended up with it and it's become the the main thing i think we kind of built up to it as we wrote the book and and as we wrote a definition a more detailed definition of what we meant by net positive i don't know how we got to that one day it might have actually been so we had like a third author which was jeff seabright who you may know he's been around the block coke unilever he was in the clinton administration he worked in oil and gas years ago he's been everywhere he may have come up with that question i i you know it is, I think, the core question, which is to be net positive as we define it, is that you are creating well-being. And it's important to say that your business is thriving because you're creating well-being for every stakeholder. So this is employees and customers and consumers and communities, you know, everyone. And you're doing it at all levels, every product and service, you know, every building you operate, every country you operate in. And this is a North Star, and it's not something companies can claim to be at yet. Unilever isn't there yet. It's going to take some time. But it kind of, does all boil down to if you're doing this right and you're building towards a net positive impact on everyone, then you can pretty clearly say, okay, we have a positive impact on the world. Our existence is good for the world. And so we just posed it that way. You know, is the world better off because your business is in it? It's hard to answer. And I find a lot of people have really been pausing on that question. And I find myself asking it about just my own career. And, you know, as a person, it's kind of easy to ask that, especially as you kind of hit more middle-aged type birthdays. And you start to think about if there's less career ahead of you than behind, have you done what you wanted and all of that. So I think it's kind of very personal too.
1: I think that also jumped out to me. You've been doing sustainability consulting almost 20 years now. You had a line in there about the sort of evolution of terms that are commonly or, or somewhat commonly understood. You talked about If being green is about doing less damage, sustainability is about reaching net zero. Net positive is about making things better. Do you know how you got to that particular frame?
0: Well, I mean, look, there's, we weren't the first people to talk about, well, any of these, I mean, look, there's very little new in the world, right? I always joke that if you write a business book, Drucker already did it probably 60 years ago. You know, there's only so many things to say, right? And even in sustainability, The fundamental story we're telling hasn't changed that much. I think part of it is about trying to come up with language that's easy to read. That's always been my goal in doing these books is making them accessible. And instead of getting wonky about the terms, just trying to be really basic about it and just saying, okay, where we've been, where we are now, where we want to head, you know, what's kind of the before, during, and after. And, you know, green isn't the only term we've used and sustainable is not the only term and net zero is not the only term, but kind of in buckets, you know, the world has evolved and business has evolved from, I mean, you've probably seen this, everybody in sustainability, every professor, everybody working has some chart that shows a progression of company from not caring at all, and then caring about compliance and law. And it builds through these stages to whatever we're calling it now, you know, a more net positive business or strategic sustainability. And so there's, there's that progression in your head, but instead of making it, you know, five or six steps, I think we wanted to just say, okay, what are the three big buckets now?
1: There's so much jargon and, and it just makes it inaccessible and less mainstream, which is what the goal of what we want to do here. And that's why I've always, your writing has always resonated with me.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, I think, I think the sustainability field sometimes, sometimes we get in our own way. I mean, we're always looking for better and new terms. Regenerative is really big right now. I don't have any problem with it. I think regenerative works perfectly for certain settings, but there's lots of people who, you know, I've tried this. It's like blank stares. Like, what does that mean? And so, you know, we chose that positive in a focused, purposeful way, which was, I don't know, making it simple. Look, my first book was called Green to Gold. It's like the least subtle title. And I've honestly heard this story many times where someone said, oh, I brought it to my CEO or something. They said, oh, gold, money. I like that. You know, like we, the, the whole point is in that title, which is if you do this green thing, you can actually make money. It's not some plot to take profits away and it's not going to hurt your business. It can actually help. And that was kind of like, again, one of those early stages of acknowledgement of sustainability, which plenty of companies are still at, right, are still coming to. And we chose positive as like, okay, let's make it really simple. Like, are you having a positive impact? And that can incorporate whatever other terms we want to use, regenerative, restorative, circular, but try to make it as basic as possible. But I, I will say, I don't really care what language people use. It's really about the level of ambition. You know, Walmart's been talking regenerative. If they're comfortable with that and they know what it means and they can talk to their suppliers about it, great. If others want to say sustainable or, you know, net positive, whatever, it's just about the level of ambition that we need. And it needs to be a lot higher than we're at, which is scary for a lot of companies because, you know, some are already doing a lot, but we've got to go even faster.
1: Let's dive down there a bit. You provide some really illuminated examples of specific sectors that might profit from serving the world with this framework. You highlighted food and ag, consumer, uh, finance, of course, which resonated with us, and Hannah Armstrong, and social media, and more. I think that really helps bring a concept to life. Could you give our listeners a sense of some of those core tenets or principles of a, a net-positive company, using some of those sector-specific examples?
0: There's five core principles that we talk about, and I'll, I'll quickly review them. And then you, we do lay out kind of quickly in the intro, like, well, what does what a net positive company kind of look like really broadly? What, what would it look like if a agriculture company were, were net positive? So the five core principles really boil down to you take on a long-term and multi-stakeholder model. And what that means is you fight the short-term pressure, you're trying to deliver value for society and business in the long-term, and you're doing that by serving all these stakeholders and by, you know, improving their well-being, And you put shareholders really at the end of that list. It doesn't mean that they don't count. It means that you are creating value for them by solving problems for the world, right? And that a net positive company profits by solving the world's problems, not creating them. Another principle is that you're gonna need partnership to get there, transformative partnership. The scale of our problems is too big. No company, no matter how big is big enough for a lot of these challenges. But the core one, the one we start with really is ownership. And for me, it's a better word than responsibility. Corporate social responsibility has been around. It has its use, but it's been really about philanthropy in a a lot of ways. And it's really about like, just don't do anything really awful and just try to be a good citizen, which is fine. But ownership means like the way you try to teach your kids, like you made a mess, you own it, right? And, And I think companies, we hope, will step back and look at the full impacts they have on the world. And, and I think you've seen the progression of companies in the, you know, the listeners are probably pretty familiar with greenhouse gases and, and scope one, two, and three, and all that for the greenhouse gas protocol, you know, scope three being your emissions in your value chain outside of your own control. And a lot of companies are just getting to that and looking at it seriously. And we push in the book, the idea that you got to think probably even beyond that, especially multinationals to the impact of your sector, to the advocacy and policy positions you and that your sector has To the largest impacts you could have on the world? Are you affecting just consumption levels or fossil fuel-based society? I mean, you take that view, it brings a lot of potential opportunities, a lot of probably anxiety about how do we tackle something that big, which is why the partnership principle is so important, which is you're not alone. You're not trying to do these things alone. But we tried to paint a picture early on to say, you know, if you could imagine like food and agriculture through their processes that they are using regenerative agriculture that they're making the soil richer that they're protecting biodiversity and they're sequestering tons of carbon through raising cattle or growing crops that makes them you know net positive there's work going on on making things like cement or heavy industry carbon free or carbon positive by capturing carbon in cement things like that imagine and we try to skip to some of the sectors that we don't always think about as having you know these big footprints but imagine social media companies actually helping people find truth and strengthening democracy, right? And strengthening our connections instead of really fundamentally making money now on rage, right? And division and, you know, in financial companies, I mean, you guys are obviously kind of by definition financing the, the positive, but, you know, imagine if they were only financing clean tech, you know, which is basically you guys, but that was the financial world. And they were, I think also serving the poor, as well as, or better than the rich, right? Because that's not what finance has been. And so you start to think about what could this sector look like? And again, it's not philanthropic. It's it's building a thriving world. I mean, how else are we going to thrive as business if we keep drawing down on our natural and human capital? How good is that going to be for business in the long run? So those are the main principles, and there's a lot to it. That's helpful. I mean,
1: with respect to finance and why obviously the book resonated with us is... You know, again, when we think about our, our vision, you know, long-term, you know, every investment should improve our climate future. And our purpose is that we strive to make climate-positive investments so superior risk-adjusted returns, so profit through purpose. And we're big on challenging some of their folks in finance to say, that's great that you've invested more and made some climate finance commitments, but you just tripled your Fossil investment projects and signing up for the Paris Agreement or doing a science-based target, and those finance emissions; those are decades. decades. So the decisions we make about we we finance now, we're kind of past that. So I think what we're trying to do is say, you've got to disclose all that you're doing, not just talk about the things you want to talk about. Be transparent, but also acknowledge matching that up. And, and what we're trying to say is these things can be profitable, right?
0: There's opportunity. Hugely. I mean, renewable energy is cheaper fundamentally to, to build now than fossil fuels. But I mean, it's amazing the misperceptions in business. They still think, oh, solar is going to take forever to pay off. And you know I don't know why they still hold those perceptions. But look, it's great that the all the big banks now have set targets to be net zero or zero in their portfolios because those of us in sustainability have been pushing and asking for that for years, right? But the amazing thing is the goals, a lot of them set are like 2050. And I don't even understand what that goal means. Because if you're saying we're going to have a net zero investment portfolio by 2050. Are you still investing in fossil fuels in 2049? Because since we have to get to zero emissions basically by 2050 and infrastructure is, you know, 20, 30 years, that means you have to stop financing it now, right? I mean, and the fossil fuel industry always develops these really interesting storylines for years and years. It's, you know, it was a hoax. The science isn't good. Then there was a kind of era of like, oh, it's, you know, there's still always this story. It's going to cost too much to do anything about this. That's the big lie now, I think. It's it's going to destroy the economy. But the thing they've hit on recently, as you guys probably know, that is really subtle, is we're going too fast, right? If you change the grid over, it's going to collapse. Look what happened in Texas during, you know, ice storms, which by the way, froze natural gas facilities as much or more than wind. And that's their story. and, and, a good story like that for making your pitch has always got to be based a little bit in reality. Like, yeah, if you shut down all coal and oil and natural gas immediately, we'd have a problem. But nobody's pitching that, right? Like, no, nobody's saying shut down everything. It's really about how do we accelerate the transition, develop the, the storage technologies for both within an hour, within a day, in between seasons. And those are big challenges. But start pointing all of that great R&D money to those challenges, not to finding more oil and gas that we're never going to burn, right? And that's, I think, what the larger pitch is. And so the idea that we're going to make this transition totally smoothly, and so if we don't do it smoothly, we shouldn't do it, is just ludicrous. Of course, there's going to be problems as we switch energy sources. It's a whole transition, and that happens in all technologies. It doesn't go 100% smoothly.
1: I think you wrote in your forward that you weren't sure that you'd write another book about sustainability strategy. I mean, you've been writing regularly for hbr and, and mit and giving talks in the interim but what really convinced you to do your third book and put us in your head and heart and, and when you were thinking about the kind of commitment to do this again
0: no i appreciate that i mean actually it was my fourth book i have fourth a book i'm quiet. sorry green recovery. i have a quiet little green recovery. stepchild yes yeah that was meant to be a short and short-term book like right as the collapse of oh nine ten you know the the market was collapsing and Harvard Press that I've been working with for all said, you know, someone should write a quick book about how green can get us out of the recovery. And I was like, Ugh, they're right. I was <laughs> like, so, I was like, I'm going to have to do that. And it was like a six, it was an intense like six weeks to write this little book. Um, there's a lot of reasons I thought I might be done. One, the big pivot for people who haven't read it is basically saying that we got to solve the biggest problems in the world and work back from there and use the tools of economics and markets and all that to solve them. And so, in a lot of ways, that's the whole story. I mean, and that's what we're saying in net positive as well. So I figured like I kind of said my piece and here's what I think are the strategies that are needed. I started ta- in that book, um, which came out, you know, almost eight years ago, I talked about science-based targets, which I was one of the earliest to talk about it. And then there were science-based targets programs after that. And I talked about lobbying. I talked about regenerative. I kind of felt like I had said my piece and then Paul Pullman called me and you know, the short answer is why did I do this? Cause Paul asked, but we met like climate week in 2019 in New York and I didn't know what we were meeting about. I didn't know him very well. I'd met him a couple of times. I had worked with Unilever in the U S but of course I knew him, right? I mean, he's the, the giant, One of the most well-known. Sure. Yeah. He's the most well-known I think has done the most as a large company CEO to try to show this as a model that fundamentally works. And he basically said, you know, people are always asking me to write a book. I never really thought I would, but, and he talks about this in, in his preface, but enough CEOs were coming up and saying, how do we do this? How do we get started? That, he realized talking to them individually is not going to probably move the needle, like getting some some ideas out there. So long story short, we did decide to do it. I, I took a beat before I agreed because Paul knows a lot about the world. He knows how to run a, a 50 billion euro revenue company. But I know one thing, which is writing a book. And I knew what it was going to take. And I still underestimated because I selectively forgot that co-authorship is like an exponential change from solo. But I knew I was talking about at least a year of my life and probably a couple. And so it was not a, a quick decision. But then I was like, okay, I'm crazy not to do this. I don't know what will come of it. But I think my goal has always been that we mainstream all of this and that I felt like someone we, we, we should see someday, you know, a sustainable strategy book that is in the scale of big strategy books that it is, you know, good to great, like that sells a million or more copies. Green to Gold was one of the best selling of its kind. It sold 100,000. That's really great. That's a lot for a book. But I was like, we're an order of magnitude off or more from mainstream. And so I thought, if I'm ever going to get to that scale, it's got to be with this guy. I mean, like, he's the best known. His network around the world is unbelievable. He's done it. He's got a lot to say. So it was an amazing process. And trying to take this, you know, brilliance of, of a CEO who thinks in systems and thinks about the world and cares and bring kind of my 20 years of experience in the field and communicating about it and try to combine and tell kind of a linear story of a systems problem was a challenge. I, I you know, I really enjoyed it in the end. I always tell people it's, it's great to have written a book. Writing one is brutal. And everybody was, almost everybody I've ever heard writers going back centuries, you'll see quotes from, you know, Dickens or whatever saying how horrible it is. You know, it's, it's not fun, but the result can be, you know, incredibly rewarding. So yeah, you know, It seemed like, okay, there's more to say here because I always wrote from a strategic perspective, not having worked, you know, I'm not inside as a sustainability officer. I'm not inside as a CEO. I'm a a pontificator, really. I'm watching and trying to synthesize and to sit there with someone who did it and try to lay out, okay, you know, what does a big pivot kind of look like, which is what Unilever did. I talk about them a lot in the big pivot. They made this big pivot. What does that look like on the ground? And what do you have to do in a company to really make that a reality? So I think it really adds something to the books that I've written. And I think to all the books in the field, I think there's a lot of great books now. There's so many this year, CEOs is all over the place, but I don't think there's anything quite as complete as this of how, you know, really how, what are the things you got to really kind of lock down about your purpose, about the goals you set, how you build transparency and trust and, and, and build to these partnerships, really like concrete, hard to do stuff. And I hope then that it's adding something of real value to help companies move much, much quicker. I mean, that's the ultimate goal is that we foment a movement and the ambition level rises really everywhere.
1: For our listeners who don't know your co author as well, Paul Pullman, and the journey he had at, at Unilever and the Sustainable Living Plan, could you give us a synopsis
0: of some of Paul's perspectives and challenges and, and successes? Yeah, I mean, I guess the short version is he had a you know, long, successful career in mainly consumer products. He was at P&G for years and years. Nestle as the CFO. So a lot of people don't kind of realize that he didn't come in as this monk in business that just wanted philanthropy. He was the CFO. So he got hired as the first external CEO in Unilever's history. Unilever's been around since the 1870s in different forms. They were like literally the Lever brothers. And so he came in in 09. He was CEO for exactly 10 years. It was kind of a planned, you know, like that's a, pretty long amount for a CEO, but as it was getting, you know, closer, they kind of planned for this 10 year mark and started picking possible successors in year seven and eight, you know, it's how it goes. And he came in and, you know, we talk about this a lot in the book, kind of in the building of purpose at the company. There was plenty at Unilever. They were one of the leaders already. They had done some amazing things in sustainability, but the company was stagnant and the numbers were not great. They had been kind of flat or shrinking. The act locally was much more dominant than, than think globally, you know they were really kind of divided and they were in hundred and eighty countries. There just wasn't this kind of connection. As Jeff Seabright said, there wasn't the, the uni and Unilever. And so there was all this stuff to build on. The original purpose of the company had been to make cleanliness commonplace for for households. And so he decided, okay, we got to get going. we got to get the house in order. We got to kind of get growing again, gave people kind of fairly easy targets. let's let's you know, let's get moving again. Let's invest more in r and d and innovation. And started from the beginning talking about and let's let's really refine our purpose and then you know over a couple of years launched the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan and I wrote about it a lot previously because it was really I think the first there were other similar plans like Marks and Spencer had a great Plan A but the scale of this one again was kind of bigger than anything before and it was really the first at scale to be the strategy of the company and not be just the sustainability thing on the side. So for 12 years now, it's been the core of the strategy of how they communicate about what they're trying to do in the world. And so they were early on things like integrated reporting, and and they were the first to do a human rights report. They were just kept being first. And so I think his accomplishments were really moving the bar on what to expect of big businesses, showing that you can bring purpose into the company and then over years into the individual brands. You know, whenever you see an announcement about a kind of new partnership in this field, Unilever seems to be on all of them. I mean, they just are always like the first ones to sign. And so there's some legitimacy there. And every time I think, well, maybe they're overblown, then I see, you know, Influence Map, which tracks political advocacy and shows that most companies are not helping on climate labeled, you know, 15 or 20, like really good actors. And Unilever was number one. So I just keep seeing these independent groups saying these guys are for real and they're not perfect, you know, (laughs) at all. There's problems there's people like to point out there's some serious problems and they missed some things, probably didn't, you know, didn't do enough on plastics and packaging as that became a huge issue. They just were kind but of- But they show up. They show up and they're genuine. But look, there's, there's a core challenge about being a consumer products company in a world that's consuming too much. That's hard to get around. I mean, I, I say it kind of in the book and I joke with people like, yeah, they have a lot of products that improve the world, health and hygiene, soaps, like those are just good, but nobody needs body spray. Like nobody needs that, right? It's, it's a part of life for someone to feel attractive or whatever. It's not like it has no, no use, but it's not a requirement, right? So
1: we don't need Ben and Jerry's ice cream.
0: You don't technically, but I will say that I think maybe many of us do, but I think, um, it was actually, I think Indra Nui at Pepsi had the greatest framework for thinking about this, which was, do you remember it was, um, There was like three categories of product. I can't believe I'm blanking on this because it was so famous. But the last one was like fun for you things like Doritos and, you know, like some stuff's just fun. And that's okay. We need that in life too. And I, I agree with that. I've never been one to think it's not sustainable to have drinking and gambling. And like, you know, there's adult fun. I don't think it's inherently unsustainable. Like life is complicated. I mean, look how we've learned now. We need people, we need fun. We've been deprived, you know, for months and months. So, Anyways, I forget what the question was. I think we got we got off on the phone. No, just just Paul's journey. Yeah, his journey was to bring this into a big company and and make it real, and then travel the world, become really central at things like the UN Global Compact. Just get, he kept getting invited in as one of the only business voices, which gave Unilever kind of an advantage and kept them accelerating. And I've learned now working with them, becoming friends, watching him call up kind of his old friends. Like he's built a network like you can't really imagine over 30, 40 years of work by being genuine, like he's helped people. And there's some stories in the book that were blew me away. And there's some that we couldn't really tell even they were kind of too personal or things that maybe organizations didn't want told, but he's done stuff behind the scenes to help people without asking for anything. And so I've learned a lot watching him, how personal he is about writing personal notes, right? I mean, it's old school, but he does it a lot. I try to do that more now. I've tried to be more, you know, personal about all of this.
1: You know, staying on the personal, as the son of two preachers and the grandson of a theologian, I couldn't help but notice and appreciate some of the connections drawn to the principles of the golden rule, which is ever present in so many religious traditions. I think you even quoted the book of Matthew talking about how much need and how much good work there is to do in the world. Is that Paul's tendencies coming through or is that something
0: you lean into as well? Well, I, I'm not very religious. Um, I was raised Jewish. I'm married to a Lutheran. My kids I guess you'd call them their Hanukkah Christmas kids. Um, they get, you know, gifts on both sides. But, you know, they're exposed to we do our satyrs and, and we go to Easter and Christmas, you know. We're those kinds of Christians and Jews. I'm not particularly organized religion, but I, I think there's a spirituality and I believe in kind of connection and humanity and, and I look for wisdom wherever. If there's a great quote from Matthew, we also have really one of my favorite quotes in the world from Rabbi Tarfun from the first century about responsibility, right? That basically says, you're not responsible for everything, but you're not free from responsibility either. That's actually the crux of sustainability. That's the, that's the core of the book, really, which is you have to have ownership. You're not alone. It's not just your responsibility. And we're seeing the breakdown, honestly, of society by not taking that view right now. We're having a health breakdown a pandemic that could be going much slower if everyone did what was best for everyone else, right? And that's, we're in a time of incredible, like selfishness, frankly, and lack of empathy. And so we're trying to bring this humanity into business and remind people that a business is just an assortment of humans and leaders can be human. We can all be human in the business. But yes, the golden rule is really big. It's also big because Paul's wife wrote a book about the golden rule with essays from all these famous people. I mean think about it is there any statement in, that is like the best kind of summary of how humanity can function than that I mean that's why it's that's why that's it's that's in, why every, it's in religion. every
1: religious tradition it's yeah. everywhere
0: everybody if you sat back and did first principles which is what cavemen did right and said how can we function it's okay just don't do things to people that you don't want done to you and then we talk later about what people call the platinum rule or something you know a little bit about do you want to try the others what they want done? Like kind of what they need, which is an interesting play with it as well. I just think they're human. They're human. but I'm, I'm humanistic fundamentally. And some readers said like, oh, I, I've never seen love used in a business book before. I, we're seeing more of that, right? We're seeing more leaders talk openly about connection and love. And look, emotions are clearly part of, of our organizations. We have a lot now being run by fear, right? And that's a huge part of our societal problems right now. So fears and an emotion. Like, how about we go more with love and connection? Let's try that for a little while. Let's stay
1: on that too. Um, courage. You talk about courage and caring leadership. Can you outline a bit more about how net positive companies are, are fostering that? And how you talk about that in the book?
0: Well, they need it. I guess it's a circular thing. They need courage and hopefully they foster it by demonstrating it we talk in there about, you know, coming together in partnership, working with others. There's like a collective courage that comes from, you know, a little safer, right? You've got others around, you you've got the other peers kind of all pushing in the same direction. It gives you kind of group courage. Look, it does take courage. We we're fighting a story. I mean, this is kind of the way I think about this, this story of it's based really in neoliberal economic thought. And it's about free markets, shareholder value, you know, above all, it's the Milton Friedman you know, the business of business is shareholder value. It's been dominant for 50 years. And it's so dominant that it's like, you know, the the late, great Danilo Meadows said, the way to shift systems is a lot of different leverage points. One is kind of changing the paradigms, but there's a meta version of that, which is even recognizing that you're in a paradigm, right? And that's really hard, right? It's the proverbial water that we're swimming in as a fish that we don't even notice. It's so embedded. You can see it in the way news is covered, the way everything goes through the lens of, okay, I know it might save the species to do this, but what does it do to jobs? What does it do to stock market? Like that's the first question, not can we make sure we survive and thrive, right? And so changing that story is difficult. I mean, it's been so effectively put out there. If you put on your cynical hat, it's been effectively put out there because it ends up driving tremendous inequality, right? It, It takes care of the very wealthiest really well. If you drive shareholder value above all, Right. It's by the owners of capital. That's not well-being for society. The US was more equal and people were better off when there were higher taxes on the wealthy, for example, right? When there was more money going into shared coffers. And, you know, we've kind of lost sight of some of those realities and still keep trying trickle down, which hasn't worked anywhere ever. And I'm not against economic policy if it works. I mean, sure, it should be in the toolkit, but once you've tried it like a hundred times. And it doesn't work, you gotta rethink. So I think there's kind of this shared prosperity that we've lost sight of, in particular in the US, but I think everywhere. There's just this every person for themselves thing that's become dominant and it's so damaging, right? It really is not the golden rule. A lot of people put like freedom, their definition of freedom above all, and they mean freedom from having to do anything other people want you to do. And that's scary, and I hear these voices where their freedom is above all and their opinions, like everybody's opinions are equal, right? Like I know the WHO and all these doctors say vaccines are safe, but I read on Facebook that it's not. And I posted something, got a lot of likes. So it's not, everything's just an opinion. doesn't matter who said it, how much training they've had, how many years of research they've done. It's just an opinion, right? And, and that's so dangerous, so dangerous.
1: Let's talk about, another part of your book and some of your writings this fall that I really appreciated was the stuff on climate policy engagement. In your piece in the fall, uh, you talked about the disconnect, the vast disconnect between big company goals, all these science-based targets, net zero, et cetera, and then what those companies are advocating in the halls of power and you talked about this concept of it's less of a a say-do problem, more of a say-say issue. Could you expand on that a bit?
0: I mean, say-do is pretty common. We talk about it in the book a lot. You know, you've got this great pronouncement, and then you do something different. But as I looked at what I was really thinking about on that topic of advocacy and what are companies saying about their own goals, and then what are they saying to, to politicians or allowing to be said by their trade organizations, it really was like just completely different statements. And it's a really big problem, right? And so the, the specific thing that kind of made us write that piece was, and I can't believe we're still debating this bill because we wrote it a couple months ago. It's the Build Back Better bill. And the framing of it, right, has been, I think, really dumb when we can get into that kind of the, the marketing of it. In that bill is the most spending on climate, both mitigation and adaptation probably ever anywhere in the world. Hundreds of billions of dollars that is still woefully inadequate. <laughs> we need more than that and you have all these companies and like we praise them in the book and and, you know Microsoft and Google the most aggressive carbon goals in the world they're buying gobs of renewable energy they're investing in sequestration technologies trying new things if anybody gets to twenty four seven green electrons every minute of the day it's them that's their goal right all of that's great and then a bill comes along and it's going to actually invest in the infrastructure that can help everybody get there and tackle this shared problem that they say, their leaders say is existential, and they go quiet. Or like, ah, corporate tax rates. Right, because, and so the only reason you can think that they were quiet is that they don't like that to pay for it, it rolls back the tax breaks that the Trump administration put in place. It's not even like it raises them, you know, it just rolls back breaks they didn't need. And by the way, what's weirder to me is these companies in particular in tech that have been quiet, they have more cash than, I mean, why does it matter if they pay a little more tax, right? It's just, it, it's so ingrained, again, that the story is you fight for shareholder maximization and you fight all regulation and you fight all taxation. It's become so ingrained, that neoliberal model, that even the companies that know better are just sitting it out and letting the US Chamber of Commerce try to kill this bill because it might raise taxes again on companies that can afford it. But some of it, it just seems so unstrategic or non-strategic to me, like for example, the auto companies have now generally committed to all EVs, but that can't happen in reality. I have an EV and I have a hybrid. I'm not buying only EVs unless there's easy charging. So we need charging infrastructure. So if you're one of these auto companies, you should want massive public private investment in things like charging infrastructure. And that's in bills like this. And yet they come out in favor of the spending itself. Like, yeah, we like that. But then stay quiet and, again, let the bill try to be killed because it actually tries to pay for it from companies and the wealthy. What I don't get is who do they think who, who's going to pay for it? Like, What do they think is going to pay for it? Because you can't both say we can't keep raising deficits and debt and also never want to pay for something. It's just, it seems like not smart to me. It's just so ingrained that we fight this. And I don't know how we break it. Honestly, the only thing I see breaking it is employees, transparency and employees demanding change. I also appreciate that your
1: book highlighted one of the most impactful things we could do, which is put a price on carbon. But when you, when I've worked with other companies, larger, to sort of say, okay, this is the moment now. We're going to lean into this. It's sort of like, eh, well, you know, we've already said this, and we're going on to the COP, and you know, it's a passing mention here. It's like, no, no, no the specifics matter here. Like, this is the moment for this specific policy. And that pay for, and here's how we can do it equitably. I'm like, you, you actually have to say specifics. That's what legislators need. And it's sort of antithetical to
0: advocacy in this space. So it is frustrating. And, then we well, said, and if the people who can afford it won't pay for it, who's going to? I mean, let's say it was somehow unfair in charging companies and wealthy people more to help us build out this kind of solution set. What if the tech company said, yeah, we'll help pay for it because we can't? I mean, like, you know, like, it's just, again, there's this belief if we raise taxes on them somehow, that's going to destroy the economy. It's going to reduce their incentive to grow. I mean, I've never understood that. I mean, I think Warren Buffett said years ago, like, if I pay a higher tax on an investment gain, I'm still going to want that investment gain, right? I mean, you're not talking about taking 90% of the marginal dollar like we did in the fifties. You're talking about going from like 30% to 35 or something. You know, it's the idea that it would reduce investment is ludicrous. Buffett said this, like what investment am I Going to not do because I get taxed a little more on it. It's a story, right? It's something we're, we're stuck in that is really hard to get out of. And I hope these companies with the means can kind of fight back.
1: I hope so too. And, you know, we need to get Build Back Better across the finish line and, and do a proper postmortem because it was never going to be enough. But um...
0: I think it's probably not going to happen now. Who knows? But it sounds like I think Manchin and a couple of people are going to go back on their word. They told the progressives in the house they. They pass it, and now they're using inflation as an excuse. And I don't know if it's willful, but they keep talking about the expense of the bill, which is part of that horrific marketing. I don't know why you ever called it a 3.5 trillion dollar bill. Whoever speaks about their business or spending in 10-year increments, right? If you're like a100 billion dollar revenue company, you don't say, "We make a trillion. Like I don't know what they're doing, and it doesn't affect, you know, inflation or deficits if you pay for it. right? If you're taking money from one place and putting it in another, minimal, really minimal impact, right? And and so that's the part of this, you could call it a zero dollar bill if you raise taxes on the wealthy enough to pay for it. So I don't get the criticisms. And I think it's like performative. It's just trying to look like you're against some liberal agenda and that helps you get reelected. So I'm feeling not good about the prospects now, because I think clearly Manchin doesn't care if he's the lone man standing, he kind of enjoys it. What's scary to me is... It's an important priority, right? Obviously, has climate in it, but we're not getting to voting rights, and that's actually the bigger, more pressing problem. And I can't believe—I mean, I've been working on climate for twenty years, and I'm saying that there's a bigger, more pressing problem, which is demise of democracy. And I don't get get good climate policy without um, right. You're not going to get climate policy in an autocracy. Well. You won't get it in an autocracy that doesn't believe in climate change. You're getting it in China. It's autocracy, right? Like it depends on who's the, you know, who's the benign dictator, I guess. But it's, um, we're not going to get it here and it's going to be a disaster, let alone just living in an autocracy is dangerous for many, many, many people. So I don't understand. I, I truly don't get why the Democratic Party didn't push week one to pass voting protection. I mean, what's more American? What's more basic than protecting the right to vote? You know, and let people vote against it. If we want to come out against expanding voting, okay.
1: Could be on the record.
0: Be on the record. Let's turn, uh, I want
1: to do some rapid fire hot seat stuff. And these are candid conversations, so I require absolute and total honesty while you're on hot seat. I have been known for that. <laughs> so as I can tell from our conversation. So if you fill in the blanks, uh, the most important advice
0: I have ever followed is some version of assume positive intent. It's just about the hardest thing in the world right now, but it's really important in like a marriage, for example, right? And just assume that someone is trying to, at the very least, isn't trying to just, you know, make your life miserable. They got a lot of stuff going on and they're not generally trying to, to hurt you is important. It's hard to follow, but that's what I try to try to follow.
1: How about feedback or advice that you've rejected?
0: Well, it's not, I'm not saying I've rejected it for my own good, but, um, I could listen more. I'm a good talker, you know, and, and I try to do that. That thing where you you listen and actually listen, not just listen to say the next thing. I'm really bad, really bad at it. And so I can't say I've rejected it, but I've, you know, having a, a resolution every year that you never get to, you probably should give up at some point after, you know, 30 years of new year's resolutions, but I keep trying. <laughs>
1: Okay. More advice. You have two boys, right? I think they're yeah. both
0: grown up. They're teenagers. So They're, they're teenagers. They, oh, okay. they're, they're in that age where they think they're grown up. Um, okay. And they're so not. You know, I have an 18-year-old <laughs> and he's, he's known everything for about three years already. Okay. So
1: parent to parent, I have a young four-year-old son and I just had a daughter. So I have two. Oh, what's the best piece of parent advice that you've
0: heard and would tell? Some of the advice I give to parents is um, you can't control very much. I mean, to the parents themselves, not to the kids that, you know, they are who they are. (laughs) If you've ever in college, you debate nature versus nurture intellectually. And then you have a kid and you're like, Oh, it's, it's nature. Like they, I mean, (laughs) they are who they are and you can only kind of manage and work within that. Right. And try to help them evolve. Who's your writing hero? I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. Um, in recent years, I read Overstory by Richard powers and Everybody in sustainability has been telling everyone else to read it. And if you haven't yet, you really should. It's just a truly beautiful book. It has some of the quickest summaries of what sustainability means in story form. So that I think his writing is amazing. You just go, oh, that is just turns a phrase. You're like, oh, I could never come up with something that good. I always like the Jim Collins books in business, you know, making things really palatable. You know, those are easy reads. I really believe in that. I mean, like my canon originally in this field was like natural capitalism. So my friend Hunter Lovins and and their writing and kind of putting things in, in ways that you kind of get, you know, Paul Hawken, of course.
1: Okay. How do you connect with nature?
0: We try to hike, go for a run in nicer seasons. Um, we've made it a goal and we've done pretty well that every year while they've been growing up, we've done a, a national park trip. If they take one thing away for their kids is to kind of remember to get out there. We're not big campers. We're not like outdoorsy in that way, but we make a trip out of going to a national park. We do a long hike during the day and then we go stay, you know, in a nice hotel. Like that's my version of, of out outdoors, but like we've hit all the big ones in the last 10 years and they're just amazing. we did arches and Zion and Bryce, we did the, you know, five major Utah parks in August. And it's really hard to worry too much about like autocracy and climate and stuff. I'm like, no matter what we do, like these arches are going to be there, you know, <laughs> like, they just the geologic time is really helpful. So that's I think that's the bigger thing during the year. Try to make a point of kind of just just getting outside. I've been during the pandemic working on nice days just in our our little fenced in area. I just sit outside, and that's been great. People are always amazed. Oh, there's trees behind you. I'm like, yeah. Why do I have to sit in my office to have this this conversation? So it's it's hard, right? I mean, we we have our creature conference, and I definitely spend more time on Netflix than in nature. But just planning those trips is a really big one.
1: All right. Last one. If you weren't a author, advisor, consultant,
0: and uh, now and marketer, right. You would be a, you know, I, I guess if I had not gone down this path, I'd be back in my kind of came out of Boston consulting group. I'd be doing like strategy at a big firm or something. But I think the more fun answer is if I didn't go down the business path at all, um, I might've tried to go down singing I was an acapella singer. I grew up singing and was in an acapella group in college. And my now wife and I re-met. We knew each other a little bit in college, but re-met in an acapella group, kind of semi-professional in New York um, in the 90s. Where about half of us were working and half were professional musicians and still are, you know, writing, working on Broadway. And when we all hit kind of roughly 30, the professionals had to focus more and the other ones were having kids and, you know, like it kind of, kind of broke up, but we did gigs at like CBGB and New York and bitter end and like these clubs. It was great. Um, and I don't know if I would have enjoyed singing as much if I had to make a living at it. And I don't know if I could have, but I was, I was pretty good. I'm not as good now. I mean, it's, if you don't, it's an instrument, if you don't keep it going. And I've been, my performance Jones is now through speaking. And that's part of the reason I enjoy it so much. And people always ask me, how did you learn how to speak? I'm like, well, I didn't learn how to. I just, I grew up performing. So it's the same to me. So I love a big crowd. You know, I love a little bit of nerves. Yeah. So that's probably what I do. Well, Andrew, I really appreciate this
1: wonderful book. And I thank you for putting it out in the world with thoughtfulness and a a humble heart and a dedication to to sharing it. Thanks to your co-author
0: as well. Thank you. Thanks so much.
1: Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, we'd love for you to leave a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. This really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at Hannon Armstrong or email us at climatepositive at HannonArmstrong.com. I'm Gil Jenkins, and this is Climate Positive.